Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Andrew Wyeth first saw King Vidor's anti-war film, The Big Parade, when he was eight years old, and its emotional impact was overwhelming. Eventually, this experience inspired his first connected series of works. It became still more important to him in the traumatic aftermath of his father's death. During the course of his life, he viewed the film some 200 times, and many of his most famous paintings, including Christina's World, reenact key moments in the movie. In this lecture, recorded on June 15, 2014, at the National Gallery of Art, Henry Adams explores Wyatt's fascination with World War I and the Big Parade, and the ways in which Vidor's path-breaking narrative approach and innovations in film technique encouraged Wyatt to rethink the expressive and philosophical possibilities of painting. This program has been scheduled to coincide with the exhibition Andrew Wyatt, Looking Out, Looking In, organized by the National Gallery of Art and on view only in Washington through November 30th, 2014. Today I'm going to tell you a story which is about tragedy and loss, a story about obsession, and the story of the unlikely friendship and artistic kinship between two great American artists, the painter Andrew Wyeth and the filmmaker King Vidor. Uh, When we're done, I hope you'll see that Andrew Wyeth is a deeper artist than perhaps you've realized, although in strange ways that one would never uh, initially imagine. Let's start in January of 1975 when the great Hollywood filmmaker King Vidor drove out to the mailbox of his ranch in Paso Robles, California, reached into it, and pulled out what was quite possibly the single most remarkable fan letter ever written. King Vidor was then 81 years old, and the last few years had not been kind to him. Vidor had been a major force in the Hollywood film industry for nearly seven decades, and in fact, he's in the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest active career in the entire history of Hollywood. But by this time, Vidor's career as a major filmmaker was over. He was a washout. His last big-budget movie, Solomon and Sheba, a biblical spectacular, had been a spectacular flop, in part because the lead actor, Tyrone Power, died in the middle of the production, and all the main scenes had to be hurriedly reshot with different actors. The result was a hodgepodge, and Vidor took the blame. He never again got the chance to make a massive, full-scale, feature-length production. Vidor's private life was also not going well. He had become estranged from his third wife, Elizabeth Hill Vidor, his former script girl, who had ended up in control of his home and his fortune and was comfortably ensconced in the Vidor mansion while Vidor himself camped out in an office in the gatehouse. When she died a few years later in 1978, she left her estate not to Vidor but to her beloved dog, Toby. While Vidor scraped to get by, the dog was cared for around the clock by a butler and a chauffeur. And every morning, Vidor could look out the window of the gatehouse to see Toby being taken out for his daily drive in a chauffeur-driven limousine. It was a time uh, when um, a few encouraging words must have been very welcome. 
And surely Vitor got an emotional joke when he read the first three sentences of this remarkable letter, which went as follows. Dear Mr. Vitor, for years I've wanted to write and tell you that I consider your war film, The Big Parade, the only truly great film ever produced. Over the years, I've viewed the film many, many times, and with each showing, the certainty of its greatness deepens. I've always viewed it with awe, and I must tell you that in many abstract ways, it has influenced my paintings. It's certainly a curious letter. For one thing, most people have never uh, even seen the big parade, and in fact, many have never heard of it. What would lead someone to declare that it was the, uh, the only truly great film ever produced? In addition, the writer of this letter was not just anyone. It was the painter Andrew Wyeth, then without much question the most popular painter in America, a figure whom Vidor had never met but had admired from afar. And interestingly, Vidor once declared that Andrew Wyeth uh, was his favorite American painter. In 1975, while Vidor's great early achievements were slipping out of the public's memory, the painter Andrew Wyeth was at the height of his career and was moving into a sort of fame seldom if ever achieved by an American artist. Andrew Wyeth had seemingly been destined from birth for this role since his father, N.C. Wyeth, was one of America's greatest and most widely loved painters whose illustrations for classic texts, such as this amazing image of Blind Pew from Treasure Island, shaped the imaginative life of a generation of young Americans. Uh, the youngest of N.C. Wyeth's five children, Andrew's artistic talents were carefully nurtured almost from infancy, and he began making headlines for precocious, uh, uncanny artistic ability at an early age. And here he is as an impish child. Andrew Wyeth's first New York exhibition, a show of his watercolors at the Macbeth Gallery in 1937, when he was only 20, was a sellout and landed him on the cover of American Artist. By the 1960s, Life magazine christened him America's favorite painter, and in 1978, at the time Vidor received his amazing fan letter, Wyeth was gearing up for a major retrospective at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, the first that they had ever devoted to the work of a living American artist. Oddly, much of Wyeth's fame resided in a single painting. In the summer of 1948, Wyeth began a painting of a crippled woman, Christina Althun, painfully pulling herself up a seemingly endless sloping hillside with her arms. When he finished the piece, he felt a sense of fatigue and let down. When he hung the painting in his home in May, no one seemed to pay any attention. And in October, when Wyeth shipped the painting to his New York City art gallery, he commented in discouragement uh, to his wife, Betsy, I think this painting is a complete flat tire. He couldn't have been more wrong. Within a few days, whispers about a remarkable painting were circulating in New York. Powerful figures of finance in the art world quietly dropped by the gallery, and within weeks, the painting had been purchased by the Museum of Modern Art. 
For some reason, when it was hung there, thousands of visitors related to the painting in a personal way, and somewhat to the embarrassment of the curators who favored European modern art, it quickly became the most popular work in the museum. Thomas Hoving, who later became director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, uh, recalled that in his high school years, he would sometimes visit uh, the Museum of Modern Art for the sole purpose of studying this single painting. Just 31 years old, Wyeth had accomplished something that eludes most painters, even some of the greatest ones, over their entire lifetime. He had created an icon, a sort of artistic home run, a work that hovers in the minds of millions of Americans as a defining fact of their being, as an emotional and cultural reference point. Today, Christina's world is one of the two or three most familiar American paintings of the 20th century. Only Grant Wood in American Gothic and Edward Hopper in Nighthawks have created works of remotely comparable artistic power. How did Wyeth achieve this? Why is Christina's world so extraordinarily memorable and moving? Surely no achievement uh, so unprecedented and unique can be reduced to a formula. But as I'll attempt to demonstrate, Wyeth's letter to King Vidor provides interesting clues about his artistic aspirations and his often wily artistic strategies for achieving them. For as it happens, Andrew Wyeth's painting of Christina's world is closely linked both in its formal qualities and in its narrative meanings to the final climactic scene in King Vidor's The Big Parade. Understanding this sequence and the complex ways in which it became interwoven with Wyeth's own tragic life experiences, particularly uh, the sudden death of his father, provides interesting clues about why the painting is so emotionally compelling. Equally significant, Vidor's movie provides insight into Wyeth's artistic strategies in a deeper sense, particularly his use of abstraction and metaphor. King Vidor was born in 1894, the very year in which movies were invented, and he grew up in Galveston, Texas, where his father, Charles Vidor, was a dealer in South American lumber. Surely the most memorable experience of Vidor's childhood was the great Galveston hurricane, the worst recorded natural disaster in American history, in which over 10,000 people drowned and the harbor was filled with the floating bodies of people and cattle and other livestock. This occurred when he was six. He later remembered sitting on a staircase, watching the water level rise up the steps until it came up to nearly where he and his mother had taken refuge. Surely the sense of horror and cataclysm on an epic scale set the stage for what Fedor later achieved in the big parade. As a filmmaker, Fedor was the ultimate Hollywood survivor. And as I've mentioned, he has a place in the Guinness Book of World Records for his endurance. He was virtually the only major director who successfully made the transition from the silence to the talkies, and somehow he negotiated every twist and turn of technology and of changing management and fashion over the next 30 years. He produced films in every imaginable genre, comedies, historical epics, biblical spectaculars, westerns, and many films that don't fit into conventional categories, such as Ayn Rand's argument for individualism, The Fountainhead, and a group of inspirational stories promoting Christian science. 
Ironically, one of his greatest achievements was not formally credited. As a, friend to his, uh, as a favor to his friend Victor Fleming, who had just been recruited to place George Cukor on Gone with the Wind, Fedor directed all of the Kansas sequences in The Wizard of Oz, which are arguably the best scenes in the film, including the famous one in which Judy Garland sings Over the Rainbow. Despite his productivity, however, Vidor is often left out of accounts of the great Hollywood directors, such as John Ford, Preston Sturgis, Alfred Hitchcock, and so forth, since his work is so varied and seems to lack a recognizable style. Indeed, his distinctive quality as an artist is strangely difficult to pinpoint. F. Scott Fitzgerald once termed King Vidor the only interesting temperament among American filmmakers, but just what this temperament consisted of has always been difficult to nail down. The film historian Richard Schickel, for example, declared that Vidor's mind was the most literary that I have encountered among movie people. But he then went on to qualify that Vidor's sensibility was not really that of a novelist. Rather, it is a more speculative one, like that of philosophers. What he seems to have been searching for all along are general principles of some sort. Are there unseen but universal forces, historical and moral, that operate on all people? Since it is probably impossible to put matters of this kind into words, is it possible to express them imagistically? But in large part, I think, our failure to appreciate Vidor as a great artist is due to the fact that his greatest achievements were those of his early career, when he was working in films without sound that depended on the silent flow of images for their emotional impact. Of these, his masterpiece was surely uh, The Big Parade, which marks an interesting cultural turning point, since it was Hollywood's first anti-war film. Critically, The Big Parade was an unqualified success, as you can see from some of these uh, comments on the screen. In fact, it marked a major turning point in American art and culture, a sort of fundamental change in public consciousness. It was the first Hollywood film to present war without heroics or patriotic sentiment, in fact, with a touch of cynicism. It presented a new approach to 20th century life. Financially, the big parade hit the jackpot. In fact, it may well have been the most profitable silent movie ever made. Most movies of the time played for exactly a week and then disappeared. The big parade ran at the Astor Theater on Broadway for two years and took in a million and a half dollars at that one theater alone. In a few years, the film earned 60 times what it cost to make. It cost $245,000 and grossed over $15 million which translated into modern money would probably be somewhere around a billion dollars today. Andrew Wyeth was born in the year that World War I ended, and he saw the big parade in the very year that it came out, when he was eight years old, when his father, N.C. Wyeth, took him and his siblings to see it at Wilmington, Delaware. He was completely mesmerized by its battle scenes, What's more, his relationship with it was complexly related to his father's vibrant enthusiasm for the film. His father had already seen the film in New York, and so he was seeing it for the second time. 
NCYS usually criticized shortcomings in the films they watched. In this case, he was usually enthusiastic about the film's realism and also about the way it's touched to the heart of human emotions with extraordinary insight and truthfulness. In complex ways, the experience of watching The Big Parade became bound together with Andrew Wyeth's relationship with his father. The plot of The Big Parade can be simply told. The central idea was to explore the life of a typical soldier who is neither warmonger nor pacifist, but is simply swept along by the tide of his time. Jim Apperson, from a wealthy family, enlists in the army when he's swept up in the incitement of a military parade. In the army, he develops a close friendship with two buddies of quite a different social class, Bill on the left, a Brooklyn bartender, and Slim on the right, a high-rise riveter. The first part of the film, which was startling for viewers of the time because of its unsentimental treatment of the coarse aspects of uh, army life, uh, basically uh, showed the boredom of waiting around, uh, waiting for something to happen. Uh, while billeted in a French village, Jim meets a French girl, Melisande. Uh, here's their meeting, which obviously is a story in itself. Uh, there's a wonderful love scene, which was apparently improvised on the spot by the actors, where Jim introduces Melisande to American chewing gum. They quarrel and make up. Uh, they finally make up uh, and openly express uh, their love just when it comes time for him to move up to the front. There's a memorable scene of the departing troops, which ends with Melisande clutching Jim's shoe. What follows are a series of memorable battle scenes. And for viewers of the time, the combat sequences were unforgettable, a view of modern war unlike anything they had seen before. Sometimes they're very grand in scale, and sometimes they provide a very compressed view of the claustrophobia and intimacy of life in the trenches. During this part of the film, Slim is killed and Jim is badly wounded. Jim then returns to the United States, and it's only at this point, just as he greets his mother, that we see that his leg has been amputated. Shortly after getting home, he learns that his former American girlfriend has dumped him, and he finds civilian life superficial and shallow. As soon as he can, he returns to France to seek out the girl who had been such a vital part of his life. In the last sequence, she spots him on a hillside. Limping desperately, he comes running towards her. Here he's extending his arm to her. They rush into each other's arms, and the film comes dramatically to an end as they kiss. This is Andrew Wyeth and King Vidor. I don't think uh, this film made such a deep impression on me that it sort of got into my bloodstream. And uh, it's had an influence on me that's, uh, I don't think, it's very hard for me to, it's just natural to me. It's a mood, sir. It's a mood. Yeah, a mood, a mood that you, you accept it. That's right. And, and, and thought, this 
this is kind of a strong, courageous move. And just generally. And, and, and to me, it, uh, I looked at early uh, Rutherford Beer sections of my father's saints of the First World War, which he kept in his studio and the drawers up there. And it all tied up with your film. And as I matured, these things came back subtly in my subconscious mind. And I didn't realize it until Betsy pointed out in certain, when I first showed her the film, she had never seen the film. And I showed her the film, she said, my God, there's your painting, we're in 1946. There's this, there's that. And I realized that subconsciously, this film of yours, it has its effect on it. Andrew Wyeth there is 58, Vidor is 81. World War I, of course, was the first of true modern wars which showed the possibilities of mechanized destruction on a scale that uh, had never been imagined before. And, of course, this destruction was documented with photography, which was then reproduced in the rotogravure sections of newspapers, uh, such as those that Andrew Wyeth encountered. Um, and now let me show you a combat sequence from the big parade which suggests what captured Andrew Wyeth's imagination as a child, a vision of hell-like explosions and violence, uh, a vision of Armageddon. And uh, just try to imagine you're eight years old. It's 1925. You uh, live in a quiet country town and you've come to this uh, movie with your father and brothers and sisters and you're seeing this movie for the first time. As a child, the big parade inspired Andrew Wyatt's first significant series of drawings. He began making drawings of World War I soldiers in battle, uh, storming out of the trenches or being blasted by huge explosions. And he made these drawings energetically for a period of roughly six years. Uh, in this period, he progressed from drawing like a talented child to drawing with the skills of a mature artist. Uh, this is an early drawing made when he was just eight years old, and I think it's amazing in its way, uh, almost as good as an abstraction by Mark Rothko. And uh, in some funny way, you can see that uh, Andrew Wyeth was uh, 
brilliantly talented uh, right from the outset. Uh, here's another early uh, drawing. Um, a charging soldier made when he was eight or nine. Uh, here he's about 11 or 12, and you can see that he's working hard to draw more realistically and carefully. Uh, it's a little bit stiff, but I think still uh, remarkable. Um, and by this time he's 13 or 14 years old, you can see that he's quite skillful. And look at the expressiveness of the uh, figure drawing. Um, it's free, uh, but it's amazingly well observed. As he grew slightly older, Andrew Wyeth shifted away from World War I as a subject and turned to drawing medieval scenes inspired by the illustrations of his father's teacher, Howard Pyle. But some of his fantasy drawings of knights in armor also show the influence of the big parade, although they use different costumes. Here, for example, is a drawing made when he was 14, which shows a long line of soldiers stretching in a perspective wedge to the horizon. And in the foreground, a group of soldiers are looking at a face-down corpse who's been pierced uh, by a spear. First, we don't grasp the relationship uh, to the big parade, but this... Uh, this scene of a perspective wedge to the horizon is one of the signature shots of Vidor's movies and is a shot which he introduced into Hollywood cinema. Uh, a year after making the drawing of The Fallen Soldier, Wyeth went into his father's studio to receive formal technical training. And at this point, there's a space of 14 years during which the big parade had little, if any, influence on his work. Um, around 1945, however, when Wyeth returned to making work influenced by the big parade, he had started responding to it in a new way. And by the time he uh, returned to it, he had a deeper appreciation of Vidor's use of the language of film. Um, I think I've mentioned that Wyeth uh, watched the movie obsessively at the time he uh, met King Vidor. He had watched the film 180 times uh, it's two and a half hours long. Uh, my guess is that he had seen it about 500 times uh, by the time of his death. And as he once declared, now I've seen it many times, I know the story. There's nothing shocking about the story after seeing it 180 times. But the strange quality that you can't define, which is metaphor, is in almost every shot of the film. And significantly, uh, Andrew Wyeth recognized that what's interesting about the big parade is not the story, but the strange way in which Vidor uh, invests visual images uh, with symbolic meanings. Uh, to viewers who saw the big parade when it came out in 1925, it seemed more realistic than any movie they had ever seen. And Vidor introduced a number of devices to create this effect. One of his innovations, for example, was to film his star, John Gilbert, with no makeup, dirt on his face, with unkempt hair and a rumpled uniform. This is a technique we now take for granted, but when Vidor introduced it in the big parade, no one had ever done it before. 
when we uh, study it more closely, however, uh, Vidor's technique turns out to be a fascinating mix of visual languages. Uh, one of the things that's fascinating uh, about the big parade was the high degree of improvisation when it was made. It was originally supposed to be made on a very modest budget, but Vidor cleverly made the most dramatic comeback scenes of the film first and shot them in a foxhole he constructed in a very prominent spot on the back lot of the MGM studio. These scenes were so remarkable that visitors started to appear daily to view the rushes, and word started to spread that he was making a masterpiece. At this point, Irving Thalberg agreed to invest in scenes which required much greater expense and a much larger cast, including scenes which were made with the cooperation of the United States Army and Air Force that required 100 trucks, 100 planes, and 6,000 troops. Um, as the story uh, grew bigger, it changed. The ending, for example, was rewritten and reshot three times. The opening scenes were entirely reshot and have an entirely different cast than the one that was used in the first sitting. In fact, a shooting. In, in fact, the final movie is a strange pastiche of disparate elements which manipulate reality in strange ways. While we don't realize it, between one cut and the next, we're moving to completely different locations and modes of reality. For example, there are scenes that are shot against a painted backdrop. Uh, there's the hull in the back lot of the MGM studio with a lot of the filming done at night. Uh, one extraordinary, um, sorry, this is a strafing scene. I remember that when this scene was filmed, most of the audience for the big parade had never been uh, in an airplane. Uh, and it was extremely dangerous to shoot in the days. Nowadays, you can uh, do this with blue screen. Uh, but uh, Vidor took only a single cut of that because uh, he, a single shot, because he was afraid that someone would get hurt. Uh, you can see that Andrew Wyeth was uh, usually impressed with this. Uh, seen it, though he improved it by uh, scattering dead bodies all over the ground. In a few cases, we're seeing actual historical newsreel footage. Uh, what you just shot is I saw is a uh, real German airplane uh, being hit by American uh, shell fire, so that there's a real German plane and a real uh, German aviator who's dying. Uh, before our eyes. As a young man, Fedor worked for the legendary uh, tight-fisted uh, film producer Abe Stern, a figure perhaps best remembered today for his proud boast that our comedies are not to be laughed at. Uh, Vidor uh, had proposed shooting a film on location, but Stern insisted that this wasn't necessary, that it was much too expensive, and that shooting in Los Angeles would work just as well. As he declared, a rock is a rock and a tree is a tree. Shoot it in Griffith Park. 
Inspired by this remark, Vidor later titled his autobiography, A Tree is a Tree. And like a sort of Zen koan, the phrase became the mantra of his subsequent career as a filmmaker. Now, to add for Abe Stern, the motive was principally financial, but for Vidor, the moment was a sort of lightning flash of insight, a moment of illumination. He realized that film as a medium is not one of realism, but of metaphor. In a film, an actual tree in Griffith Park is lifted into another realm and can be transported through the magic of filmmaking to another time and place. Uh, so let me now show you a scene from the big parade that was shot in Griffith Park, uh, a public park in Los Angeles which has trees rather different uh, from those you find in the north of France. And I think is what's amazing is how King Vidor transforms a park in Los Angeles into the forest of the Argonne. I think that one of Fedor's most powerful lessons is to teach Andrew Wyeth to see the setting of human existence as a battleground. And as it happens, Chad's Ford was indeed a battleground, uh, the site of a savage battle in the Revolution in which George Washington was defeated and the British captured Philadelphia. 
Some of the most severe fighting took place at the mill where Andrew Wyeth lived, where six men were killed. This fight of long ago is the subject of Andrew Wyeth's painting, Battleground. And here's another landscape that resembles a battleground. The field feels like the space between enemy lines, and there's a strange sense of menace in the distant, uh, the line of the distant trees. Closely uh, associated uh, with this notion of life taking place on a battleground is a very particular sense of the expansiveness of space and the rush of space towards the horizon and towards the distance. Uh, here's Andrew Wyeth's painting of the helmet of the German machine gunner Karl Kerner used to gather pine cones and set against a row of pines that Karl had planted in memory of those he knew as a boy uh, in the Black Forest. Um, and this, of course, is the standard uh, King Vidor uh, perspective shot. Uh, the contemporary artist Cindy Sherman has created a series of photographs she calls Untitled Film Stills, in which she asks us to imagine the movie story that the photographs record. I think it's also interesting and useful to think of Andrew Wyatt's paintings in this way. In film, an opening shot often establishes a mood of suspense which suggests that something is about to happen without quite giving away what that is. Andrew Wyatt's paintings create this same mysterious feeling of apprehension. Here, for example, Anna Kerner, wearing a kerchief on her head like that of Melisande in the big parade, is looking out at Kerner's hill. Notice that the snow-covered hill is a sort of hole in the painting. It's rendered not as form, but as untouched white paper. It's emptiness, a pure white silhouette. There's the sense of something very tragic, and that was indeed the case, as I'll explain shortly. You've probably noticed that the scale and silhouette of Kerner's Hill is eerily reminiscent of the hill in the final scene of the big parade. At the time, uh, he wrote to King Vridor, Andrew Wyeth had seen the movie, which is two and a half hours long, over 180 times. He continued to watch it many times a year for the remainder of his career, and by the time of his death had probably seen it four or five hundred times. Uh, this kind of obsession uh, clearly verged on being an illness, and generally speaking, this sort of obsessive preoccupation with something is associated with an emotional trauma of some sort. This turns out to be the uh, case in the instance of Andrew Wyeth. Uh, what brought the big parade back into Andrew Wyeth's work was the most traumatic event of his life, an event that changed the course of his career as an artist. N.C. Wyeth, the artist's father, was enormously dominating, at once a generous, beneficent figure who carefully nurtured the special talents of each of his children, but also a hard, cruel, sometimes violent taskmaster whose children could never quite live up to the high ideals that he set for them. His influence was particularly great on Andrew, who was sickly as a child and never attended school but grew up entirely under his father's shadow. During his early career, it was the optimism and energy of NC that dominated. But by the 1940s, something had gone amiss. Artistically, NC seemed to have lost his way. 
What's more, at this time, Andrew began to move away from his father's influence, turning from oil to tempera, a medium of which his father disapproved, and finding another mentor for his career when he married Betsy James, who didn't like his father, who encouraged him to disregard his father's influence and to find his own artistic path. October 19th, 1945. For some time, N.C. had been moody and depressed. Then on the morning of October 19th, N.C. drove over to pick up his grandson, Newell Converse Wyeth, a precocious four-year-old who was named for him. As they crossed the railroad tracks by Kerner's Hill, the car stopped. It's not clear why. Perhaps it stalled, and they were hit by a mail train from Philadelphia, which rolled the car over and over again and compressed it into a flat sheet of crumpled metal. N.C. Wyeth must have been killed instantly. He was so badly mangled in the wreckage that it took hours to cut his body loose. Little Newell was hurled from the car. He died when he hit the embankment and his neck was broken. Andrew and Betsy were at Maine at the time. They learned about the tragedy from a phone call. In shock, they made their way back to Chad's Ford, stopping for a night in Hartford to stay with Betsy's sister, Louise. That morning, Betsy woke up to find Andrew by the window, quietly sobbing. Kerner's Hill is named for Carl Kerner, who uh, fought in the German army during World War I and manned a machine gun station at the Battle of Verdun, a battle which dragged on for 10 months and in which over 700,000 people died. In a sense, Andrew Wyeth first met Carl Kerner when he was eight, when he saw the film A Big Parade. Andrew Wyeth suffered from from poor health from childhood, which no doubt made him preternaturally conscious of death and mortality. But the sudden traumatic loss of his father in 1945 gave Wyeth a heightened sense of human mortality and loss of control. It became a sort of metaphysical amputation akin to the literal amputation of Vidor's male protagonist in The Big Parade. After his father's death, Wyatt's emotional connection with the film The Big Parade, which his father had so admired, became a powerful link with the memory of his father. His constant obsessive viewings of it became a substitute for his father's constant, almost meddlesome, emotional counsel and support. Given uh, the powerful influence on Andrew Wyeth as a painter, it's intriguing that at the time he completed the big parade, Vidor proposed the idea of making films which would dispense with plot and communicate symbolically entirely through the power of images. He believed, he said, that unless some radical change comes to pass in the making of pictures, the time will come when the public will recognize too much sameness in our photo plays, and the industry is likely to get into a rut. The thought has suggested itself that perhaps the solution to this problem will be the motion picture without a story. By that, I mean a production in which the main interest will center about the atmosphere and background rather than the acting or plot. I realize that actors and story are the principal essentials of a good picture as they are made today, but that is because motion pictures have been developed as a part of fiction and the drama and not as an expression of art. Uh, As I've suggested, one could run through uh, nearly all of uh, 
Andrew Wyeth's major paintings, perhaps all of them, uh, finding interesting parallels with scenes in the big parade. But let me focus on just two, which are arguably the two most important paintings of Wyeth's career, the paintings in which he found his mature style, Winter 1946 and Christina's World 1948. As has long been known, both paintings are closely tied up with Wyeth's personal biography. And in interesting ways, this biographical story intersects with elements drawn from the big parade. In essence, the big parade provided a reference point which allowed Wyeth to grasp how events from his own life connected with the universal themes of human existence. What I'd like to do now is look at two major scenes from the big parade which particularly affected uh, Andrew Wyeth. Uh, And the first of these comes when uh, Jim's unit is called up to the front. Uh, He and Melisande have just been separated Uh, There are wonderful shots of her with trucks rushing by, which somehow feel utterly lonely. And finally, they find each other. And let me show you how Vidor uh, deals with this. To appreciate what you're seeing, you need to remember that Vidor is speaking a language that has become a little distant to us, the language of silent film, which in some ways is as remote as, let's say, English written at the time of Chaucer. Uh, But try to imagine that you're Andrew Wyeth watching this uh, scene as an eight-year-old child.
Of course, none of this makes very much sense in uh, real-life terms. Uh, why does she want his watch and his dog tag and his silly old shoe? And why does he throw it to her? And once more, while Jim is throwing things, the truck is moving away so that by the time he got to the shoe, he'd be about a mile or two away from Melisande. <laughs> the scene becomes even more bizarre when we rec- recognize that Vidor didn't film it with a cast of thousands, but with about 50 actors and with only three trucks, which were going round and round in a circle so that we see them over and over again. And notably, there are metaphors which we probably don't consciously grasp the first time we see the film. For example, clearly, it's no accident that the leg Melisande clutches is the one that Jim later loses in combat. Uh, Let's look now at the last scene of the uh, movie, the scene that influenced Andrew Wyeth most powerfully. The departure scene creates the illusion of a cast of thousands, By contrast, the last scene of the movie is surprisingly spare, and in its essence, it can be reduced to two actors in a hill. As I've mentioned, uh, when Jim Apperson returns from France, he discovers that his American girlfriend has ditched him, and he can't adjust to American life. Uh, He then tells his mother that he plans to go back to France to search for his lost French girlfriend. We then abruptly jump from America to a scene set in France, and the heroine, uh, Melisande, is plowing uh, a hill, uh, plowing a field with her mother. Wait, just a sec. There's a problem here for some reason. Is there a way to turn on this clip? I don't understand why this clip isn't working. Well, I apologize. Um, basically, um, and that was sort of the dramatic scene of the lecture, um, but th- this is the scene where she spots him uh, on a uh, hillside. Um, no, I don't think so. Let me just... There's something. Sorry, I... Um, His father's death um, marked a turning point in Andrew Wyeth's work. Um, And one day while walking past Kerner's farm close to the tracks where his father was killed, he spotted a local boy, Alan Lynch, running crazily down Kerner's hill. He joined them. The two found an old baby carriage and rolled down the hill together, laughing hysterically. Uh, The experience became the basis for Andrew Wyeth's painting, Winter, showing Alan running down the hill, chased by his shadow. The boy was me at a loss, really, Wyeth told Richard Merriman. His hand drifting in the air was my hand almost groping, my free soul. Alan had been one of the first to encounter his father's accident. It was he who guarded N.C. Wyeth's body until firefighters came to cut it loose, and it was he who pushed away the dogs that had gathered to lick the blood. Interestingly, at some level, Wyeth must have sensed a quality of desperation in Alan, uh, for years later, a few years later, Alan killed himself. Uh, perhaps the most powerful thing uh, about the painting, however, is not the running figure, but the hill itself, which is rendered with tiny, meticulous, but also strangely meticulous strokes. 
Andrew Wyeth had never painted a portrait of his father, but when he painted Winter, the hill became a portrait of his father. He later declared that when he was painting the hill in front of which his father had died, he could almost hear his father breathe. And I think what's extraordinary is how his feelings of desperation and loss are distilled into this seemingly matter-of-fact image. Notice that the boy is wearing a strange sort of helmet, not unlike that of the soldiers in the big parade. And I think it should be evident that what we have here is a sort of a reprise of the last scene in the big parade, uh, but that the figure running down the hill isn't running to his lover, but into the hands of death, uh, which lies at the bottom of the hill. We're standing basically where N.C. Wyeth was killed by the train. And... We're reenacting the scene of Melisande running down the hill. Christina's world, of course, is an inversion of this idea and picks up the elements of the film in a slightly different way. As is well known, the painting was inspired by the sight of Christina Olsen, who was disabled. She's crawling up the hill to the remarkable bleak, windswept family home in Cushing, Maine. Oddly, Wyeth made the painting not from the field in the foreground, but from a room inside the house on the second floor, reconstructing what the hillside looked like from imagination. This time the figure is physically impaired, like Jim Apperson in the film, but is painfully crawling up the hillside rather than running down it. It's a wounded version of Melisande going up the hill to meet her lover, except that there's no lover there. Uh, like Winter, there's a distinctly Gothic quality to the painting, and in part, it's clearly a meditation on death. This is the first sketch for Christina's world. The Olsen family cemetery lies at the base of the hill just behind us, and in fact, uh, Christina has just come from decorating the graves of her parents with flowers. As viewers of the painting, we're actually standing in the cemetery, which also is where Andrew Wyeth is now buried. Christina's hands, as they sink into the grass, take on the color of the earth, as if she were being buried and transformed into the soil. And yet, at some profound level, the painting is not simply a study of fear, like the earlier painting of winter, but is closer in spirit to the actual scene from the film. There's something about the painting which, for all its death-like and grotesque qualities, is also intensely hopeful and romantic. Interestingly, while it's titled Christina's World, the actual model for the figure at the lower left was not Christina, but his wife, Betsy, then just 26 years old. And I think this substitution, basically the hands are Christina's, but the rest of the figure is Betsy Wyeth. Uh, I think this substitution is significant for, in fact, for all its grotesque qualities, the painting is intensely romantic, even a bit sexual in the way that the figure rides on the ground. And interestingly, while both uh, are striking or were strikingly good-looking people, both Andrew Wyeth and Betsy were born with physical deformities. Andrew had a slightly misshapen hip, which made him walk like a duck, and Betsy had a slightly misshapen spine and as a child was in traction uh, for long periods. In the famous departure scene in the big parade, which ends with Melisande clutching Jim Apperson's shoe, Vidor had shown how a shoe could serve as a metaphor for a person who was lost. 
And interestingly, the shoe in Christina's world was not Christina's shoe, and not just any shoe. It was a shoe that Wyeth had found in an abandoned house in Maine, and at some level, it symbolizes her abandonment. What's intriguing about all of this is how um, the scenes from the big parade uh, provided a kind of template on which Wyeth could work, laying out feelings and images from his own experience. A handicapped or emotionally wounded figure, a hill, the infinite sky, a rush towards love or death. And interestingly, these are also themes which were embedded in the great paintings of his father, N.C. Wyeth, who had loved the film. And here you can see uh, the strange affinities between Christina's world and the painting, which is probably his father's greatest illustration, Blind Pew. Um, for that matter, uh, there are parallels between Wyatt's painting of Winter 1946 and Blind Pew. Uh, notice the emotional significance of the shadows. Uh, so that in interesting ways, the big parade made it possible for Andrew Wyeth to connect with his father's achievement as an artist, but not through superficial borrowing, but through a grasp of the deepest impulses behind his work. Hardest to explain is something that goes beyond technique. There's some sort of deep philosophical insight that Wyeth shared with Vidor, something about the relationship between people and landscapes and uh, the way that they're set uh, in the universe as a whole. The danger of copying and of sources is, is that it's easy to copy the surface features of your model and to miss what's underneath. Uh, and there's a perverse brilliance in the fact that Andrew Wyeth used as his principal artistic model not a painting, uh, but a movie. And uh, to turn a movie into a painting, you need to penetrate it to its essence. You need to reinvent it. Uh, in other words, uh, you need to think about it in abstract ways. Uh, as in uh, a film in uh, Wyeth's paintings, we often don't uh, fully uh, grasp uh, what's going on. Sorry. Um, And I think Vidor basically provided a model for how an artist can move beyond reality and beyond narrative into metaphor. And in this regard, it's interesting uh, to note that in one of my uh, conversations with him, and he said this to other people also, Andrew Wyeth commented that if he were to paint Christina's world again, he would leave out Christina. And uh, for Andrew Wyeth, uh, you don't even need the figure, the field of grass, the great sweep of emptiness says everything. And uh, look at the way he gets emotion into a painting of a field of grass. And let me wrap this up by letting. Uh, and so um, on the surface, it's hard to think of a more unlikely combination uh, than uh, King Vidor, the ultimate Hollywood wheeler dealer and survivor, and Andrew Wyeth, the reclusive uh, American uh, painter. Uh, but as uh, artists, there are deep connections between them. And uh, let me say that hopefully I've inspired you to go out and get a copy of King Vidor's film, The Big Parade, or to watch it uh, when it's here on the big screen. And at the time when you've watched it 180 times, 
uh, perhaps you'll be ready to fully appreciate Andrew Wyeth's paintings. Thank you. Yeah, and I'll take a few questions, but feel free to leave if you'd like to. Yeah. Did your Andrew never served in World War II, did he? No, he never. Um, he was, um, he, he had, Andrew Wyeth had an infected lung from childhood, and that was eventually removed in a severe uh, operation, and um, he was functioning on one lung for the rest of his life, and that lung also was uh, infected, which is what killed him, though, not till he was, uh, 86. So, no, this is imaginative uh, projection on his part. Yeah? Uh, well, what do you think of the um, story that N.C.Y. has killed himself and his grandson? I've read that. I, I think that one of the things that's most traumatic about N.C. Wyeth's death, and I didn't go into this in detail, but no one quite knew what was going on. He was clearly starting to go into severe depression at the time of his death. It could have been suicide. It could have been an accident. He was also, N.C. Wyeth was having a slightly uh, too intimate relationship with the wife of his oldest son, and that uh, clearly uh, had a lot of strange uh, family uh, vibrations. So that I think that it was a death that would have been horrific under any circumstances, but was particularly troubling because there were so many family issues that were unresolved and, and so many mysteries associated with the death. Yeah? I was wondering when you met Carl Kerner at the age of 15, I think he talked extensively about the First World War with Carl Kerner, and much of what basically for the first section of Andrew Wyeth's career, he has two subjects. One is Carl Kerner and the Kerner House, and the other is Christina Olson and her brother and uh, the house in Maine. And Wyeth was clearly fascinated by brutality, and I think Kerner fascinated him because he was um, a very genial uh, you know, intelligent person, but then there was this undercurrent of quite extraordinary brutality, and I think that uh, Wyeth was interested in capturing that quality uh, in his paintings. I think the whole series of paintings of Carl Kerner is, in a sense, a meditation on the big parade, and if you looked at those paintings individually, you can often pick up, you know, more specific references. Yeah. Yeah. That was the son of his oldest, of N.C. Wyeth's oldest son. This was Nat uh, Wyeth, who uh, Nat in the Wyeth family was viewed as strange and peculiar because he was the only member of the family that didn't want to become an artist. He became a highly successful inventor and chemical engineer for DuPont 
And in fact, he's the guy who invented the plastic bottles that we use every day. Um, it's, it's sort of uh, ironic. Um, but um, yeah, it was his oldest child who was killed, who was named for his grandfather. And Nat's wife was related to the illustrator Howard Pyle, so that, I mean, there are all who N.C. Wyeth had studied with. So, I mean, it's an endless, um, it, it's a family drama with, with many, many layers to it. Yeah. Um, Vidor did do things, and I mean, this would take further thought, but one of the things that Vidor did was hold a shot for a very long period of time. And basically, D.W. Griffith had introduced the kind of fast cutting that we're used to uh, in uh, film. But there's actually, in some ways, the best scene in the big parade is one of um, when... Jim is trying to kill a German uh, soldier who had killed his buddy, and he climbs into the um, foxhole with him and is going to kill him, but the guy is already dying, and he ends up sharing his cigarette. Um, But this is a film where you're expecting it to cut, and Vidor just sort of holds the camera relentlessly in one place, so that I think that there are affinities of that sort that um, and Vidor is a very visual filmmaker he communicates through visual metaphors as much as through dialogue or or character as you so so I think that that's something that also appealed to Andrew Wyeth Um, it it is an extraordinary film and if you see the scenes out of context you lose some of their impact. If, if you watch the whole movie, it starts off seeming strange for the first 15 minutes, and then you get completely uh, caught up by it. And uh, it is an epic film of a, a sort that is almost unique in the history of movies, I think. Yeah, one more question. Yeah. Why Uh, They met in 1975, and I didn't go into that, but basically when Wyeth had this show at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, interestingly enough, he wanted to show clips from the big parade. In the end, that didn't happen, but that's why he wrote the letter to Vidor to get permission to use some film clips, and then Vidor followed up uh, by coming to see Andrew Wyeth and making a little... Uh, film about the two in dialogue, which is what I showed you clips from, um, which is a film that was only briefly released in France, which is why you were seeing um, a copy with French subtitles. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.